We return to Matthew this morning, chapter 26. Yeah, I mentioned at our earlier service in Creighton that the first part of the week I told Linda I'll be preaching Matthew 26, 1 to 16. And then I told her on Friday, she just shook her head at me and said, no, you won't. And then I said on Friday, it'll be verses 1 to 5. Uh, if anybody ever wonders or asks you why I, I only prepare for six days to preach and rather than two weeks, it's that if I, if I went two weeks, it'd be a verse at a time. So I have to, I have to bring it to a close because I have a, a deadline, as it were. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so fitting on this first Sunday of 2024 and our first communion Sunday of 2024 that we would begin these last three chapters of Matthew when for so much of, of these chapters, Jesus is focused intently on the cross. He is purposefully heading for his own death, for the sake of our redemption and atonement. We thank you for that, and we ask that as we patiently look at these words, that you would teach us. Teach us about your love and the love of our Lord and the love of the Spirit who indwells us. Teach us about your power, about your grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the first five verses of Matthew 26 say, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, speaking of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. So what we see are purposes in opposition. The purpose of Jesus and the purpose of the leaders are opposed to one another. We'll begin with Christ's purpose in the first two verses, I don't need to read it again, I just read it. He states God's purpose, his purpose with simple clarity. In two days, he will be crucified. So let's just think about what that means for a moment. It's still Wednesday of Passion Week. We, we've spent weeks and weeks and weeks in the Olivet Discourse on Wednesday afternoon of Passion Week. It's still Wednesday afternoon. He's not yet arrived in Bethany. The sun has not yet gone down. It's the 13th day of the month of Nisan. Uh, Passover was the 15th of Nisan, which means, of, of course, in our thinking, Passover is going to take place on Friday. We have Jesus speaking these words on Wednesday. We have the, uh, the, the, the Lord gathering with his men on Thursday and then Passover on Friday, except on Thursday, they celebrate Passover. So 
how does that work? I, I've seen a lot of different explanations. I've heard explanations that there were two Passovers because you've got the locals from Judea and then you have the people traveling from Galilee. I've heard that because of the hundreds of thousands of people who gathered in uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, they couldn't slaughter that many lambs in, a, in just a few hours. So it took several days at the temple to process all of that. And so Passover was stretched out. Uh, the, the answer that I think is the most likely is the one I've actually never heard or read. A Jewish day began at sundown, not at midnight. Our days begin at midnight. Their day began at sundown. Jesus is speaking these words late on Wednesday afternoon. In just an hour or two, perhaps, it's going to become the next day. Now, not Thursday. It's going to become the 14th of Nisan. The 13th of Nisan is when he's speaking. Jesus says in the day of preparation the next day is, is the 14th. And then on the 15th, which doesn't, doesn't begin a day and a half later, it begins the next day at sundown. Passover will be celebrated. The 14th is the day of preparation. We see that. His disciples will come to him. Uh, we'll see that in a month or two, I guess. But his disciples come to him and say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal? And they're speaking about all of the, the arrangements that have to be made and searching the house to make sure that there's no leaven inside and those types of things. So what happens? Jesus speaks these words on the 14th. The sun goes down, it becomes, or I'm th on the 13th. The sun comes, goes down and it becomes the 14th. He continues on into Bethany, and he's, perhaps he's there at sundown. He's at the house of Simon the leper. The woman anoints him. Judas goes off to make his deal. The next day, the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples come to him and say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? That's all on the 14th. And the next evening at sundown, it's now the 15th. It's now Passover. So on Passover, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, he institutes the Lord's table. He delivers the upper room discourse, which is in John 13, 14, and 15, and 16. He prays in the garden. He's arrested. He's tried. He's condemned. He's crucified. He dies, and he is buried all on Passover. All between sundown on what we call Thursday and sundown on what we call Friday. In two days is the Passover, not 48 hours, but two, two days. And then Jesus says that he will be crucified, delivered over for crucifixion. That tells us at least two things. First of all, it tells us that the Romans are going to be involved. The Jews were not allowed to put anybody to death. As far as I understand, no country that was occupied by the Roman Empire was allowed to practice the death penalty. Only the Romans could do that. The Jews were not allowed to carry out the death penalty. They could and did carry out severe punishments. Uh, they could give somebody 39 strokes with a scourge, which was a, a multi-corded whip with bits of bone or metal or stone at the tip, so it was a brutal treatment. 40 was considered the death penalty. 39 was not considered the death penalty. So if you received the 39 and then you died, well, that was on you. But you hadn't been given a death sentence. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less, less one. Five times. 
That's brutal. But it wasn't the death penalty. The second thing that it means is that Jesus' death is going to be a public death. Crucifixion is a public execution. The Romans had all kinds of ways of executing people. They beheaded people. They ran them through with spears. They ran them through with swords. They strangled them. They hung them with ropes. They even stoned them. When they crucified somebody, it was, if you will, a public service announcement. It was sending a message. Don't commit the kinds of crime that this person committed or you will die too and as badly as they are dying. There is no such thing as a secret crucifixion. There is no such thing as a private crucifixion. The whole point of crucifixion was to send a message. Now, when Nero comes around, and uh, to use Linda and I, Linda and my, my favorite new, new statement, he was as crazy as a cat in a coffee can. Nero did have people crucified in his gardens and then sometimes lit them on fire to light up the gardens at night. But usually when he was throwing some kind of a party or a celebration, even then it was for the sake of public display. All of the sacrifices that were commanded by the law of Moses were public. The most significant of those sacrifices was the sin offering. There were a bunch of different offerings, but the sin offering was the one that mattered the most because it was the means by which a sinner could come before God, have their sins covered, and be allowed not to go to heaven, but just to worship, just to worship, just to pray. So that person would bring an animal to the tabernacle or the temple, and that happened during the daytime, not at night, not in secret. They would lay their hands on the head of the animal, and the priest or whoever was standing around would hear them confess their sin. The priest would uh, take a knife and slaughter the animal, cutting its throat. They would catch the blood in a basin. The blood would be poured out on the altar. The animal would be dismembered, and parts of it offered on the altar, burned for sins, parts of it roasted to eat. None of these things happened in, in private or in secret or under the cover of night. And so if you were 100 feet away and you couldn't hear the words that were said, you recognized that's a sin offering. That person is confessing their sins. And it all happens out, outdoors. It all happens in public. The idea of a secret, private, anonymous confessional simply doesn't exist in Scripture. James says that we should confess our sins to one another. Now, he doesn't mean by that, stand up one by one in front of the church and he doesn't mean establish some kind of complicated ritual. He says, don't keep your sins to yourself. Don't live a secret life. Let somebody else in. Somebody who's mature, somebody who's strong, somebody who can stand with you, love you, care for you. Not everybody is capable of doing that. We recognize that. But don't keep your sins secret. So Jesus' crucifixion is a public event. It's obviously described in public. The Gospels describe various people being present and passing by. The, the mount that's called Golgotha, Golgotha from the Aramaic for skull. It's also called Calvary from the Latin word for skull. It was a, a mountain with a cliff face, and the cliff face until the early 1900s had rock, a rock formation that looked like the, the hollow eyes and nose of a skull. There was apparently an earthquake in the early 1900s, and it collapsed, but not before pictures were taken. 
So there are pictures from the late 1800s, early 1900s that show this formation on the face of it, not up on top of the hill. I don't think, personally, I don't think Jesus probably was crucified up on top of the hill out of sight of everybody. I think they crucified him within, down at the bottom of that cliff face, which is 20 or 30 feet from a Roman road. And everybody passing through Jerusalem sees what's happening. That's the Roman way. A private crucifixion just doesn't happen. Galatians 3.25 says, God displayed publicly Jesus Christ as a propitiation in his blood. Public display. The Father did. The crucifixion of Jesus was not hidden or glossed over by the apostles. Every culture that, had, that understood crucifixion, that had it, understood that it was the most humiliating death somebody could die. The victim, and, and by the way, I've never found evidence that a woman was crucified. The victim was stripped naked, not covered, no loincloth, naked. And they were hung up out in the open for everybody, men and women, to see. And they might last for two or three days before they died. It was an utterly humiliating, embarrassing, degrading way to die. But when the apostles walked into a town for the first time, they didn't say, we bring you news of a risen Savior who was dead, and he's alive, and he was crucified. But now he's back to alive, and, and, and he's powerful. And Paul says, indeed, the, the Jews asked for signs, and the Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The victim of the most horrific embarrassing, humiliating death there is. To Jews, he says, that's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I read an article this week that said, if churches really want to reach unbelievers in our generation, that they, they have to have the best possible ambiance and decorations. You have to be serving the best coffee. Don't give them this Folger stuff. And, and basically, the article presented unbelievers as being so incredibly fragile that if you step out of line, you'll lose access to them forever. And wouldn't that be terrible? Paul and the others walked into a city, and they say, we proclaim to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord who was crucified. And immediately, 99% of the Jews were offended, and 99% of the Gentiles were amused. Why did they preach Christ crucified if the whole goal was to get as many people in as they could? It's because he was crucified for our salvation. What about the humiliation of being stripped naked and hung out in the open for all to see? What about being exposed to the greatest public shame anybody could ever know? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that Jesus embraced the joy of redeeming his people so much that he despised the idea that the cross was shameful. It wasn't shameful to him. It was a glory to him. So to summarize God's purpose, Jesus will die in two days. After he spoke these words on the 15th day of Nisan, Passover, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, What's more, he would be crucified, requiring the involvement of the Romans and making his death a public event, guaranteeing that the news of his death would be spread throughout the Jewish world. You've got hundreds and thousands of Jewish pilgrims who are going to know by the time they go home what's happened. 
What about man's purpose? Well, verses 3 to 5, the chief priests and the elders were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Just to give you a brief explanation of who these men are, the chief priests describe the current high priests and the, the living former high priests. Um, the Roman Empire was in power over Israel with the temple for 120 years or 140 years or something like that. And during that time, they had 24 high priests. High priests weren't like Supreme Court justices who were appointed and then served for decades until they die. They might serve for three or four or five years. And so just like we, have, we currently have President Biden, but then there's President Trump and President Obama and President Clinton and President Bush and President Carter still is stubbornly hanging on. We've got a current sitting president and former presidents. There was a sitting high priest and former high priests. That's the chief priests. During that period of, Rome, of Israel's history, they all came from just a handful of families. In fact, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of the previous high priest, a man named Annas. They were all Sadducees, which means they denied the existence of the spiritual world, the existence of angels and demons, heaven, hell. They denied the resurrection. For them, and ironically for the, for the high priests, I think, uh, the purpose of Israel's religion was purely cultural. It's what made them Jews, but it didn't mean anything. It was just a cultural celebration. The elders of the people were notable men in society, wealthy. They were politically powerful, perhaps. They occupied a distinct social position. They served as an advisory body for other leaders. They represented Israel in matters involving the nation. What brought them together on this Wednesday afternoon was Jesus, the Nazarene carpenter who's been causing all the trouble. Three days before, first day of the week, what we would say is Sunday, Jesus had entered from the Mount of Olives, surrounded by a multitude, meaning thousands of people, shouting out praises to his name. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew writes in chapter 21, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple after that, he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who were selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. If you happen to remember back when I was preaching in Matthew chapter 21, I pointed out that the robber's den is where the robbers go to feel safe. Some of the most unethical and crooked people living in Israel went to the temple to conduct their crimes because they felt safe there. But when the chief priest, I'm sorry, uh, then verse 14 in chapter 21 says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous thing which he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant, outraged, morally offended. And so they've simply 
run out of patience. Since Jesus entered, he has continued to confound them. The high priest had approached him and demanded to know what authority he had. He said, I'll tell you if you tell me about John's authority, the Baptist, and they refused to tell him about John the Baptist's authority, so he refused to answer them directly, but he gave them three parables. The parable of the two sons, the one who, uh, whose father asked them to go work, and one of them said yes, and the other one said no. The parable of the vine growers and the parable of the wedding feast. All of those parables established Jesus' authority and showed them to be in great danger. They tried to trick him into saying the wrong thing by asking him about paying taxes to Caesar, about the resurrection of the dead, and about the greatest commandment of the law. And they failed to trip him up. And then he goes on to publicly condemn them in Matthew 23 in detail. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so they'd had enough. It was time for him to die. It was time for him to go away. But here's the thing. They're going to seize him stealthily and kill him. And I I just think from the the language, the idea is seizing him stealthily and killing him the same way. Seize him by secret, seize him by trickery, and then kill him quickly, kill him quietly. Whatever happened to Jesus? I don't know. I haven't heard from him in months. They just wanted him to go away. Permanently. And not during the festival, they say in verse 5, lest a riot occur among the people. The festival is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day feast that begins on Passover. It begins on the the 15th of Nisan, just like Passover begins on the 15th of Nisan. I don't know how to pronounce Nisan. Nisan, Nisan, I don't know, but the 15th of that month. They began, Passover is a single meal, and then the feast continues on for seven days. These crowds are in Jerusalem for the whole feast. And so really what they're saying is, we want to seize him stealthily and kill him quietly, but we'll do that at the end of next week or maybe the week after. Otherwise, the crowds might riot. Riots are a bad thing. The Romans don't like riots. The Romans didn't occupy countries in order to have power. They occupied countries in order to make money. It was about the money. And as long as the people of that occupied nation, as long as they paid the money and everything was nice and quiet and smooth, they could worship whatever they want, they could eat whatever they want, they could have their own local leadership. We don't care as long as the money keeps flowing. But riots stop the flow of money. Riots are bad things. Like the the sheriff says, one of the sheriffs in the, the, the western Silverado, it's hard on the peace and it's hard on the furniture. And the Romans didn't like that. They even say in John, I think it's in John 11, if we keep him, let him keep going like this, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Our privilege, our wealth, our position is dependent on keeping the Romans happy. Pontius Pilate, during the trial of Jesus, is doing everything that he can to release Jesus to them. And he says at one point to the chief priests, shall I, shall I release your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So they want him dead quietly in a week or two. 
we have purposes that are in opposition. So whose purpose will stand? Well, there's no secret to it. We know the rest of the story because we know the rest of Scripture. Jesus was determined to die publicly on the cross on Passover. The chief priests and elders were determined to wait more than a week and then seize and kill him secretly. Psalm 115.3 applies here. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6 says virtually the same thing. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. There is no place somebody can go and get out of the reach of God's purpose and God's will. Sometimes we feel like we're put on the spot, those of us who stand firmly for the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the decrees of God. It's more emotionally satisfying for many to say, God didn't know that it was going to happen, that terrible thing that happened. Or God knew that it was going to happen, but he couldn't do anything to stop it. But God's never out of control. And the truth is he has purposes that we can't comprehend. We're not God, and so we have no right to stand in judgment on him. Well, what was it that the Lord Jesus was pleased to do? Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. What was it that the Lord Jesus was pleased to do? He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. He was pleased to offer, offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners, taking upon himself the full guilt of his people, completely satisfying the eternal, righteous judgment of God. And that's why we sing words like, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Or my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So because of the cross of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. We are not redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver or by good works or by good intentions, but with the precious blood of Jesus. He bore our sin in his body on the cross so that having died to sin, we could live in righteousness. That's why Jesus came. Every purpose of the Father, every purpose of the Son, every purpose of the Spirit is focused on the cross. It's focused on Calvary. It is the high point of human history. 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. John Owen wrote this, and I've, I've modernized it because, you know, John Owen. But this was not just to open a door for sinners to come if they want to or are able to nor to make a way for them to come if they wanted, or to make reconciliation merely possible, but to actually save sinners from all the guilt and all the power of sin and from the wrath of God against sin. And what we see in the chief priests and the scribes, I believe, I believe, is the devil trying to stop this. Satan certainly knows the Bible word for word but he doesn't understand it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that in order to understand spiritual things, you must have a spiritual source. It requires us to have the Holy Spirit to understand scripture. Satan doesn't have that. 
So Jesus or Satan knows much about Jesus when Jesus is born. But I don't think that he gets this. I don't think that he understands what Jesus is actually going to do until Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And I think at that moment, Satan realized what was going to happen in just a few months. Sin is Satan's weapon against us. Death is the consequence of sin by the judgment of God. It's not a natural consequence. It comes directly by God's judgment against that spiritual crime. If Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, he destroys sin, he destroys death, he destroys everything that Satan uses as an advantage. John wrote in his first epistle, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and the devil now sees how that's going to happen. And as this week begins to go forth, Satan is motivating the chief elders and the high priests, or the chief priests and the, and the elders, to avoid the cross, to wait a week or two, and to let this be a secret, quiet death, not a public atonement. I believe Satan caused Pilate's wife to suffer nightmares so that while her husband was examining Jesus in the trial, she sent a message to him saying, Having, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. That's not God sending her a dream so that his son wouldn't be crucified. That's Satan trying to stop it. Pilate himself says to the Jews at least once or twice, maybe more, I find nothing wrong with him. You've got to give me a reason to crucify him. Give me a reason. And they couldn't give him a reason. Pilate ultimately yielded, I think, because several years before this, he had robbed the temple treasury to pay for some improvements. And the Jews complained mightily to Caesar. So Pilate's political future hinged on keeping them happy. They owned him. But Jesus had to die on the cross. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare to die, Romans 5 says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. He had to die on the cross. This is the demonstration of God's love. As we bring this home, this morning we celebrate and we rejoice in the cross of Christ. This is what that means, just using Isaiah 53 as a guide. We rejoice that he bore our griefs and sorrows. We rejoice that he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. We rejoice that the chastening for our peace was upon him. We rejoice that God caused our iniquity to fall on him. We rejoice that he was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to slaughter, and that by oppression and judgment, he died in our place. How can we rejoice in that? Because he did it for us. He did it for the sake of grace. He did it for the sake of love. Jesus bore it all in our place and then rose from the dead. The judgment that would have ended us forever could not end him. 
The death that would have taken hold of us for eternity could not keep him. He rose from the dead. And here's the the most marvelous thing. When Jesus emerged from that empty tomb, he didn't turn and look at humanity with hatred and anger and resentment. He looked with grace and mercy and love. In the hours before he was crucified, in the garden, Jesus prayed this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For Jesus, his crucifixion and burial and resurrection is the means by which we would get to share in his love and glory. No resentment, no anger, no hatred. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross for the joy of redeeming us. And for the joy of pleasing the Father, yes. For the joy of obeying the Father, yes, absolutely. But not at the expense of his love for us. Those wounds are the wounds of love that he still bears in his hands and his feet and his side. We're going to change things, the order of things, just a little bit this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing together. And while I'm singing, one of the men will hand out the elements for communion, and we'll celebrate that before we have our prayer time. Father, what a marvelous, incredible thing to us. that the holy, righteous Son of God, pure, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, would take the death of a sinner on himself. What a marvelous thing it is to us that by your grace we are saved. What a wonderful thing it is that your love for us was not poured out on us after we earned it. It was poured out on us when we were still dead in our sins. We could not comprehend what it meant to be free or what it meant to be loved by you. I ask that you would allow us to rejoice in that this morning. 